morning, everybody. How are we? If you would like to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will get a Bible to you. Romans chapter 10. Slim pickings this morning. It's quiet, isn't it? Amen. The weather. So Romans chapter 10, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. So Paul began Romans by declaring that, and we see this in chapter 1 of Romans verse 16, that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Because he knew that the gospel had the power of God for salvation to everyone, to absolutely everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, to the Gentile, to to the non-Jew. So Paul wasn't ashamed by the way in which God chose to save us, to save mankind. The Jews, however, they were stumbled by it. They they were stumbled that God would make salvation a free gift available to everyone and available to everyone on the basis of faith alone. In fact, the Jews, they were outraged that anyone would suggest that they would even need a savior. Shocked that both Jew and Gentile were equally in need of salvation. So that was the extent of their religious pride. And and isn't that what Paul has been trying to get through to these people? That you are not automatically saved just because you are a Jew. You know, we look at Catholicism, they baptize people, um, they baptize babies. And there's a false sense of security in that. And people say, well, it's no big deal, but it is. Because it gives people a false sense of security that they're saved. But you say, well, I was baptized when I was a kid, so yes, I am. So that's the heart. That's the mentality that the Jewish people had. So Paul here, he undermines their expectation of salvation just because they were descendants of Abraham. And we saw that when we came to Romans chapter 9 and 11, Paul once again focused on the Jewish people, on his own people. And what he did, he anticipates their next logical uh, question, questions that Paul would have heard time and time again as he traveled from synagogue to synagogue proclaiming the gospel message. Questions like, well, what about us? What about us, God's chosen people, Israel? If what you teach is true, Paul, then what happens to us Jews who reject your so-called Messiah? Have we been replaced? Does God no longer love us? And that's what Paul has already addressed in chapter 9. Israel's rejection of God's plan, his plan, of salvation. 
their rejection of their Messiah. Paul explained to the Jews, look, you have not been hard done by here. And he did this by pointing out to the many privileges that Israel, that the Jewish people had experienced throughout their history. After all, it was true. They were God's chosen people. They were his family, his children. They also had the glory, the very presence of God in the temple. The Jewish people had the covenants, those agreements that God made. And that's what covenant means. It means agreement. The agreements that God made with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and then later on with with David. They were given the law, God's very word. They also had the privilege of worshiping God. And they had all those promises. God telling his people, if you adhere to my law, I will bless you. That's a long list of privileges, isn't it? No Gentile could ever proclaim that. No Gentile ever experienced such blessings. So they weren't hard done by You see, the protests came when God's sovereign will clashed with their thinking when it came to salvation. They believed that by keeping the law of Moses that they could earn for themselves a place in heaven. For a Jew, they thought it was guaranteed because they're a Jew. So why would they need a crucified Messiah? Their Messiah would be a political genius, a warrior king who would defeat the Romans and expel them from from their land. And today the Jews are still waiting for their Messiah. And we all know who he's going to be. But despite what they might think, God's will hasn't changed. God's will does not conform to ours. They're the ones that had the issue. They're the ones that did not like the Messiah that God had already sent. And as we saw in the last teaching, they were stumbled by a a beaten, ridiculed, and bloodied Messiah. Yet they themselves had a long history of, of experience God's election, God choosing who he wants to choose. Paul used the example of God choosing Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. They had no problem with God choosing those guys. Why? Because they were their descendants. And they had no problem with God choosing Moses. But when God chose to save mankind, both Jew and Gentile, through a crucified Messiah... They did not like his choice, and they certainly did not like his method. Now, in the opening verse of chapter 10, Paul once again expresses his deep-felt, genuine desire that Israel, that all of Israel would be saved. In fact, chapter 10 of Romans is probably the greatest chapter in our Bibles 
concerning faith. Faith as a way of receiving salvation. So let's look at verse 1. It says, brothers. So he's referring to his, the Jewish people as brothers because he's a Jew himself. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul, he prayed for the salvation of Israel. He wanted nothing more than to see his own people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's a problem. For I bear them witness, he says in verse 2, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? To knowledge. Paul respected no, Paul respectfully points to the Jewish people's love and zeal for God. And they genuinely wanted nothing more than to honor God and to worship him. And here was a man talking from personal experience. Because Paul was once a Pharisee. They were a sect within Judaism who followed a very, very strict adherence to the law. They taught the Jews that they must observe all 600 plus laws of the Torah, and the Torah are the first five books of the Bible. So Paul understood. He understood his own people because he was saved out of that religiosity. And then verse 3, Paul mentions the knowledge, the knowledge that they were lacking. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul testifies that the Jews had a, a great zeal for, for anything to do with God. Yet they still didn't know the transforming righteousness of God. You know, Paul himself had to be knocked off his high horse. He had to be blinded for that to happen. But what is the only righteousness that God will accept? What is it? What is his standard? It's, it's perfection, isn't it? It's sinlessness. Jesus told the crowds that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, you can, can you just imagine the, the reaction of the people when they hear this? Who could be more righteous than these guys? The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious elite of their day. They dedicated their lives to the things of God. But God will only accept a perfect righteousness. So it's unattainable. And isn't that the theme of Romans? The righteousness of God. And how he has made a way for us to be saved from our sin. And Paul has proven that sin is the problem throughout this book. But if you and I are going to be made right with God then we, we can't do it in our own righteousness, so we need someone else's. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus, he took on upon himself our sins, but he was raised for our justification. 
allowing God to see us as absolutely perfect, unblemished. We are regenerated, born again, a new creation, just as if we have never sinned. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The single greatest thing that kept the Jews unsaved was their belief that they could become right with God through their own efforts. But as we know, justification cannot be earned by performing some religious ritual or by keeping a long list of rules and regulations. It's just not going to happen. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the purpose of the law, and we covered this before, the purpose of the Ten Commandments are to point us to the fact that we are indeed sinners. But that's a good thing. Because how are you going to see your need for a savior if you cannot accept the fact that you're actually in need of one? That you are indeed a sinner. So the law is good in that it acts just like a mirror. It reflects our true condition, our sin. The law reveals our desire to follow and obey our flesh while also smashing our, our conservative evaluation of our own sinful nature. In that it compares us to God's righteous standard. It's vital that people understand that God's standard is absolute perfection. And only a sinful life is acceptable. A truth that, if accepted, will leave you with no option but to look outside yourself for salvation. <clears throat> I, had a, I had a chat with a good friend of mine a few months back. And he, he um, confidently informed me that there are many, many ways to get to heaven. That all the religions have some kind of truth. And if you adhere as best as you can to their doctrine, then, yeah, all roads lead to heaven. That if people just do their best, then there's a good chance that they'll get in. So I was there listening to this like a, like a greyhound in the trap, asking God to give me wisdom and the right words to say and not to pounce on him. So I pointed him to the prophet Isaiah and, and what he said that we are all infected and impure with sin. That we are sinners by nature. We are born sinners. And that we are sinners by our, our, our daily actions. And I pointed out to him, so look, we are all guilty. I pointed him to the Ten Commandments. I listed them out. And he agreed with me that he broke a lot of them. You know, and as I explained to him, the law does not equip us to resist or give you the power to adhere to its demands. The, the law of Moses, it is no cheer giver. It reflects our true 
desperate condition. The law is no source of encouragement. And then I shared the gospel with him. And the only positive feedback I got, got from was that he listened. You know, it was going in. He was thinking about it. And it's important when we share the gospel that we don't get frustrated. Remember, we are planting seeds. Before I came to know the Lord, I heard the gospel a number of times. The Jews did not understand that Jesus came to put an end to the law. They didn't understand that God sent his only son to be the perfect, the final sacrifice for all sins. That Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath and he satisfied it completely. And now in verse 5, Paul compares and he contrasts the law of Moses and the gospel. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So Paul is saying to him, look, if you want to be made righteous by God's law, then you are going to have to keep it. But you are going to have to keep all of it. But see, the problem is, nobody can keep the law of Moses. And Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, he summarized the law of Moses in two commands. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I can't do that. I don't think I've ever done that in a day. It cannot be done. Because James wrote, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So it's impossible. There were some within the church in Galatia who were trying to reintroduce the law of Moses to, to, um, to earn your salvation or to maintain it. They were attempting to go back under the law. And Paul tells them in Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? So Paul tells them very sarcastically, Have you read the law lately? If not, then read all 613 commands and then come back to me. In fact, much of the Old Testament deals with the punishment that Israel received for disobeying these laws. You and I are justified before God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the law has done its job. You are justified that very moment that you put your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus alone lived a sinful life. He kept the law on our behalf. And justification is a completed work of God. And there is nothing that you and I need to do. We can't take anything from it. We cannot add to it to get into heaven. That's good news. <coughs> Paul now quotes from Deuteronomy in the hope that the Jews will understand the nearness, the, the availability of the gospel. 
So if you look at verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Paul here is explaining that salvation isn't some distant promise. He's telling them, if you want to be saved, put your faith in the Savior that God has already sent you. It's that simple. You see, salvation wasn't as difficult as the Jews were trying to make it out. But there's something, isn't there, in humanity that makes us think that by our very own efforts that we can earn eternal life. That if we just keep some ritual or, or partake in good works, that we can prove our worth, our value in the eyes of God. But Paul told the church in, in Ephesus, he said, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And then he goes on to say, so no one can boast. But how people stumble when you tell them that salvation is a free gift. And I'm sure many of you had that reaction. You know, is that it? Is that all I have to do? Surely there's, there's something more to it than that. I've heard that on numerous occasions. Paul tells his fellow countrymen, look, salvation isn't far away. Paul explains that there is no need to search salvation out because it has already come. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is... The word of faith that we proclaim. Salvation is near. And it can happen right here this morning. How is that possible? Because God sent salvation to us. You don't have to reach out to the heavens in the hope that you might find God. Because God has already sent his son to us. He's already paid the price. And this word of faith that Paul speaks of here, it's the gospel message. It's the good news. Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, he said, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And this word mediator comes from the Latin word which means to be placed in the middle. So a mediator is someone who stands in the middle, someone who intervenes between two parties in order to bring them together in peace. Now, Job understood the need for such a mediator. One of his complaints, and it's recorded in Job chapter 9, when he's speaking to God, he declared, for he is not a man, again speaking about God, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. 
And this is his complaint. There's no arbiter. There's no mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Job knew that God was a just and righteous God. But he also knew that he was a sinful man. And therefore, he understood the need for a mediator. Paul declares that we have Jesus Christ standing between us and God. And Paul's statement here in 1 Timothy echoes what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He said, I am, the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father. In other words, no one gets into heaven except through me. It's exclusive. And people don't like that. They like many paths, many roads. So there is only one way to the Father. There's only one way into heaven. There's one truth and one life, and it's all found in Jesus Christ. Now Paul tells the Jews how they can be saved. And it's just a matter of believing in their hearts and confessing their faith. They are to call upon the name of the Lord if they are to be saved. Verse 9. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to believe in your heart is... it. It means that you are convinced. You are absolutely convinced. So it's more than just an understanding because you can understand something without believing in it. So the first thing you must do in order to be saved is to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God. You must be convinced that he died and rose again. John wrote in chapter 1, verse 2, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you believe in his name, he will give you the right to become his child. So let's look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In other words, when you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are made right with God. You are justified, just as if you never sinned. Genesis 15, 6 tells us how Abraham was saved. And this was before circumcision. This was before the law was given. How was he saved? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord. And God's reaction he counted to him as righteousness, salvation. Being made right with God is a result of faith. You have to believe the gospel message. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's simple. Faith is what brings salvation. And with such a faith comes confession, as Paul says here. We confess with our mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, 
him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. A person who believes will confess. They will be willing to publicly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. They will tell others. They cannot but share their faith. So Paul here, he has, he has declared that the gospel is available to absolutely everyone. And this would have been a shocker to the Jews. Paul goes on, quoting from um, Isaiah. He says, verse 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him <clears throat> will not be put to shame. As much as the Jews look to the cross with shame, Paul reminds them that in the end, Nobody will ever feel ashamed for having put their faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody. The law was designed for Israel only, but the gospel is for everyone, for Jew and Greek. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So as far as salvation is concerned, Jew and Gentiles are saved in the very same way. So you don't have the Jews being saved through the law, because that's impossible. And then the Gentiles being saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. They're all saved through Jesus. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who can call on him. So the, one of the questions this morning, have you done that? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? And if not, then Why? You know, church, we're not promised tomorrow. And just because you were born into a Christian family does not mean that you are saved. Just because you come to church on a Sunday doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you do good works doesn't mean you're saved. Again, in verse 13, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, this time from the prophet Joel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And hasn't this been God's message from the very beginning? God told Abraham in Genesis 22, and through your descendants, all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. So there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's by faith. It's not by what you have to do. It's what Jesus has already done for us. And because salvation is not by works, but by faith, anyone can be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And it's the very message that we, you and I, proclaim. So what I'd say to believers, and this is, I'm preaching to myself here as well. Paul had a heart for his own people. We need to be praying for the people of this country. We need to be praying. If you're not a believer here this morning... As I said earlier, what are you waiting for? 
On the cross, Jesus bore your sin. The cross is where, where you and I as believers have been redeemed. It's where our debt to God has been canceled. And when you by faith receive the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you, then and only then will you be given the gift of eternal life. So ask yourself, why am I not accepting this truth that Jesus is Lord? And it's easy. But that was one of the stumbling box blocks for the Jews. How can it be that easy? And it is. And church, that's our message to our families, to our communities, and to this country. Amen? So as, as the worship team comes up, just remind you that the elements of communion are up here in the front and down the back. And the Word of God tells us that before we take communion, we should examine our hearts. And what I do is confess any sin I have. I ask the Lord to, to reveal any sin in my heart, in my life. And then I, then I take communion. And when we take it, we remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We remember the sacrifice, the blood that was spilled for us. He was beaten for us. And there's also communion in the back. So church, let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. Now, your word tells us to, that you made this day and let us rejoice in it. And Lord, I, I ask, Holy Spirit, if there's, if there's anyone here today that is not a believer, Lord, if there's anyone here today who may be scared, Lord, like I was before I accepted you, Jesus, to, to reach out and ask you into my life, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take away that fear I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bind the enemy from them, Lord. We pray for salvation in this place this morning, God. We pray for new creations, Lord. And Lord, for us who are so absolutely blessed that we know you, Jesus, that we have a place reserved for us in heaven where we will spend eternity with you, Lord. Let us never forget that. Let us encourage one another with those words, Lord. But Lord, let's get the word out. Help us, Holy Spirit. Take away any fears we may have, Lord. Let us live out the gospel. Let us speak it, speak it out, Lord. And Lord, I pray that this week that you will give us opportunities to do just that. So Lord, we thank you. How can we not but praise you, Lord? Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.